On Friday, Vice President Kamala Harris rebuked the Florida Board of Education's new standards for how Black history will be taught in schools, calling it an effort by extremist leaders to spread propaganda. Speaking in Jacksonville, Florida, Vice President Harris said the recently approved curriculum, which suggests some slaves reap benefits from the skills they acquired during forced labor, was based on a policy intent on misleading children. Chris Christie also slammed Governor Ron DeSantis over Florida's new Black history curriculum. De DeSantis started this fire, according to uh, Chris Christie, with the bill that he signed. And now he doesn't want to take responsibility for whatever is done in the aftermath, says the former New Jersey governor who is also running for president. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott doubled down today in a letter to the Biden administration that Texas won't comply with the Department of Justice's plans to sue the state for deploying a floating barricade at the southern border. The Department of Justice, in a letter to the Texas governor on Thursday, cited the unlawful construction of a floating barrier in the Rio Grande River and asserted that the barrier might impede the federal government's official duties. Joe Biden is expected to establish a national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother. The monument will protect places that are central to the story of Till's life and death at age 14, as well as his mother's activism, which helped to spark the civil rights movement. The federal judge presiding over Donald Trump's indictment for allegedly mishandling classified documents has scheduled his trial to start in late May of next year, rejecting claims by the former president's attorney that a fair trial could only be held after the 2024 election, as well as the Justice Department's request to start the trial as soon as December. Well, Twitter is rebranding to a capital letter X. Twitter's owner, Elon Musk, announced the rebrand this weekend. He suggested replacing its Bluebird logo with an X, which started showing up on the site overnight. Branding experts and former employees, including some, uh, say that Musk is making a horrible decision with respect to this rebranding. Well, Barbenheimer shattered box office records this weekend. Oppenheimer earned $80.5 million domestically, while Barbie earned $155 million. Now, this was the biggest North American opening for a movie directed by a woman. The twin blockbusters playfully linked by moviegoers gave Hollywood its fourth biggest three-day weekend and the largest not led by the Avengers or Star Wars franchises. Texas A&M University President M. Catherine Banks resigned late Thursday amid the fallout from the mishandled hiring of an African-American University of Texas professor who rejected a watered-down employment office offer to revive the school's journalism program. Now, all of this blowback and controversy is because this journalist and you, uh, a Texas uh, University professor, has done extensive research while working for the New York Times on diversity, equity, and inclusion. You'll remember that Texas 
public universities are preparing to discontinue offices on diversity, equity, and inclusion to comply with a new state law set to go into effect in January. Senate Bill 17, which the legislature passed this year, also bans higher education institutions from requiring DEI statements and even DEI training. Well, you are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news and breaking news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, two superstar contributors are joining me, including a regular on this show, Alan Orr. He's an attorney and founder of Orr Immigration Law Firm. And making his debut appearance on Ariva Martin in Real Time is Eric Ward. He is the executive vice president of Race Forward. And in hour two of Ariva Martin in Real Time, we are talking about the sentencing of the USC dean involved in the Margaret Lee Thomas federal bribery trial. In hour two, we go deeper and bring you the news behind the headlines with newsmakers, thought leaders, people impacted by the news, and the nation's leading experts. We have been the only network in the state of California bringing you gavel-to-gavel coverage of the federal bribery trial of former Los Angeles County Supervisor and Los Angeles City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas. Today, in a downtown federal courtroom, 84-year-old Former USC Dean Marilyn Flynn was sentenced. Our justice correspondent, Dion Raymond, was inside that courtroom and will be here in the second hour with our panel of legal experts who have been helping us uh, make sense of everything that's been happening in that trial. Uh, Dion will bring us the latest on the sentencing of Marilyn Flynn. We'll talk about what this means for Mark Riley Thomas and ask the really big question. Uh, did anything today cause Dion or our panel of experts to believe that Mark Ridley Thomas is surely going to face some kind of jail time when he goes before the same judge in August? So make sure you stick around for hour two. But before I bring on my guest, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Andy Borowitz. He is uh, a writer, a comedian, a satirist, uh, an actor. And Borowitz is also a New York Times bestselling author who won the first National Press Club Award for humor. He is known for creating the NBC sitcom, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And he's also uh, a satirical columnist at The uh, New Yorker, and he writes a, a newsletter for The New Yorker called The Borowitz Report. And I follow Andy. I, I read his report. I love uh, The New Yorker. And let's listen to what he wrote just today about this ridiculous Florida education uh, standards or the standards about the way they're going to teach kids in the state of Florida about slavery. So I'm reading verbatim from The Borowitz Report. And it starts like this. An unskilled Florida man said that he deeply regrets having missed out on the opportunity to be a slave. The man said that his lack of access to enslavement had made his acquisition of essential skills impossible. Every day when I mess something up at work, I wonder to myself, would I be doing a better job if I had been a slave, he said. There's no question that it would have been a game changer for me. 
The man argued that being barred from forced servitude was a form of white underprivilege and that Caucasians who suffer from a resulting skills deficit deserve reparations. Something must be done to compensate uh, people like me, this is in the man's voice, who were unfairly denied the chance to be slaves, he said. When I think about the personal benefits I was prevented from obtaining, it makes me furious. Now, again, I started by telling you that Andy writes satire and he's, you know, making light of doing what comedians do, making a joke out of this ridiculous and highly offensive and highly dangerous uh, set of rules by the Florida Education Department. But, you know, if you think about what this education department is saying about acquiring skills uh, what this, uh, you know, writer Andy, you know, the, the satire writer Andy Borowitz says in this column or in his newsletter isn't so far off. Because if slavery was all about acquiring skills, if this was really some kind of job core or some kind of job training program, then uh, Andy is saying white folks, you know, they got cheated. They got denied an opportunity to get this free job training. Uh, and, you know, I think when you read a column like Andy, uh, it really drives home the point of how dangerous and how ridiculous this policy is and how everyone, black, white, red, green, brown, doesn't matter what color you are, what ethnicity you are, everyone needs to be voicing their opposition, their outrage, and sending a loud and clear message to Ron DeSantis in Florida, to his uh, committee uh, that, you know, approved these standards, that we will not stand for the rewriting of our origin story. Uh, slavery was not a job training program. The, the brutality, the inhumanity of slavery, uh, you know, cannot be reduced to someone acquiring a skill that they, uh, according to this ridiculous plan, may have used later in life. You know, if you force me to learn how to be a locksmith to put, uh, you know, uh, something on the bottom of your your horse's feet or to open doors for you, uh, that does not in any way undermine the rape, the the the, the violence, the beatings, the, the murders, uh, and, and the forced labor that our ancestors had to endure uh, as a result of chattel slavery in this country. So thank you, Andy, for helping us understand how ridiculous this policy is uh, and for, you know, making light of a very serious situation because sometimes this stuff is so heavy and so ridiculous and so unbelievable that laughing about it is the way that we keep our sanity. Uh, when we come forward, more with today's breaking and trending news with my expert contributors right here on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and you are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time. And I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And in this hour, we are tracking today's breaking and trending news. And I have two experts here with me in this hour to help us make sense of all of this news. Alan Orr is returning to the show. He's the founder of Orr Immigration Law Firm. And Eric Ward, executive vice president of Race Forward, is making his debut appearance on the show. I want to start with you, Alan. So you have Dr. Kathleen McElroy. She is already a tenured professor at Texas A&M University. She's an experienced journalism a professor. Uh, she's previously worked as an editor at the New York Times. 
And she turned down this offer to reboot the uh, university's journalism program after all of these uh, shenanigans with her offer. She was originally offered a 10-year track offer that was reduced to a five-year position, then reduced to a one-year position from which she could be fired at any time. She was told uh, after this big public signing ceremony where they announced her hiring with all this fanfare, uh, that there were groups outside the university system that uh, were, weren't happy with uh, issues involving her previous employment and her support for diversity in newsrooms. What is going on in Texas? Because we, we're so busy, I think, sometimes focus on Ron DeSantis in Florida. We forget about Greg Abbott in Texas and what he has done uh, to dismantle so many important programs like the dismantling of DEI in public universities. And this is an example. Here's this very, very acclaimed journalism professor who, uh, after this you know, big deal about hiring her to reboot their journalism program, basically says, you know, walks away because of this insulting offer that she has now been given. So I think in the space, she's not the first, and Texas isn't alone in that. There's an educational problem. We saw Professor Hannah Jones also turn and walk away earlier. We've seen other professors go to Howard instead of going to some other institutions. I guess Hannah Jones went there too. Um, so I think the answer is the attack on DEI. As a professional, I'm glad she made that decision because when someone tells you they don't want you, they don't want you. And if that's not her struggle and her battle, then that doesn't need to be a struggle in her battle. She's come too far to have to prove herself over again or to risk the opportunity to move there to make them seem like they're doing her a favor. Once again, sort of backing up on that enslavement conversation that they're doing her some favor as this esteemed writer to come to their institution to make their program work, but their name is what's carrying the bond. So I think it's the appropriate thing. But I think Part of the repercussions of this is something that I hope happens both from Texas and Florida. I hope the students stop being allowed to get into college, saying they don't have an appropriate education because they're not exposed to curriculum that everyone else is exposed to. There's deficiency in their learning and their curriculum studies that don't make them equal the matriculation of other students in the educational program. So it's a bizarre way to attack DEI, but it is working in Florida and in Texas. Yeah, you know, I want to dovetailing on what you're talking about in terms of this Florida, uh, you know, education committee trying to rewrite U.S.'s origin story, rewrite the origin story of slavery uh, in this country. Eric, obviously, the vice president came out slamming Florida. Uh, Ron DeSantis said he didn't do it, but then tried to explain it by saying there were some people and apparently they cited, you know, for, I, I think I saw a list of like 15 people who they cite gained some kind of skills as a result of being a slave that later enhanced their lives in some way. And I saw someone do a fact check and say six people on this list weren't even slaves. Uh, and I'm looking at someone sent me an Instagram post from a woman who's an African-American woman who's on this committee. And, uh, I don't know. This is kind of hard to make sense about what this woman is saying and what she's doing. But what do you make of Ron DeSantis trying to back away uh, from what he has put into motion with all of his, quote unquote, anti-woke policies? Absolutely. I, we are seeing the outcomes of a culture war that Ron DeSantis has been waging in the state of Florida. Uh, some of this is cynicism. 
uh, Ron DeSantis in order to make his run for the Republican candidacy viable needs to lean into the worst prejudices and stereotypes in American society. He's trying to out-Trump Trump. But the truth is, is that it is the rest of us who live with the repercussions of this type of cynical campaigning. We should be concerned. We should be concerned because Ron DeSantis, in his drive uh, to make the White House, is setting new standards, uh, uh, shifting how we understand America, how we understand the importance of diversity. Citigroup, in a, in a study done 20, uh, in 2022, uh, uh, showed us that since 2020, the United States has lost $16 trillion due to the discrimination, right? Racial discrimination against African Americans in the society. This is nearly a trillion dollars a year, dollars that can be used for all of our communities in moving us forward together. The end of the day, Ron DeSantis is being cynical, but who's losing out are students who are seeking education that actually helps them move through a 21st century America, one that is diverse, one that is global. And Ron DeSantis is uh, debasing the idea of education, but it's frightening. The, the last piece I'll say that we should understand about Ron DeSantis and this push and attack on DEI and education is that it dabbles in historical revisionism, right? It dabbles in a reimagining of what the horrors of transatlantic slavery were like, and it is as insulting as denying the Holocaust. We should be hearing more voices from civil society leaders, business, religious leaders, government officials who understand that this is a moral line that Ron DeSantis and his appointees have crossed. No, absolutely. I, I agree with you. And I'm a little surprised that we haven't seen more folks coming out slamming uh, these, uh, you know, rules. This this woman I was talking about, uh, Alan, her name is actually... Yeah, I know uh, her. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those that don't, uh, her name is Kimberly Daniels. Uh, she is a Democrat, actually. She's a Jacksonville Democrat on this board. She's a DeSantis appointee. She's distancing herself, too, saying that she was not consulted, and people went and found this sermon that she gave where she says, and that's what's making its way around the internet in this sermon, where she says, thank God for slavery. And she says, but for, you know, slavery, she may have been in Africa somewhere worshiping a tree. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's saying that people are taking that out of context. She was preaching that 15 years ago as an evangelist, was really talking about overcoming obstacles and as a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, blah, 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 blah. What's up with Miss Daniels, let's be uh, well, fair. I mean, she even said at this the time, 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, even at the time she said it, there's a deficiency, right? So I can't even forgive it was 15 years ago. I mean, worshiping trees is worshiping trees. It's bizarre. It's crazy. It's lack of understanding of what actual the indigenous cultures of Africa involved in the education and the creativity that was there way before anyone else came and tried to enslave people. So that's one of the fictions. But I do, because I love law and order, I want to put the fingerprints in the right place. The attack on DEI is the Supreme Court. What the Supreme Court just did is what cleared the way for all this trouble. And that's why you see all these corporations dumping all these DEI professionals and people revising their resumes. So the blood is on the hand of the Supreme Court for not meeting the standards of what 
the Constitution said and what Justice, Justice Kentaji Brown sort of noted clearly in her dissent saying, listen, this was always about race. If the problem was race, the cure also includes race. So let's stop saying we live in a colorblind world. And as long as the Supreme Court is what the Supreme Court is, we're just going to see this happen more on a larger level because there is no barricade to say that's not OK anymore because we're supposed to be we're past all those things now. Right. And so that's well, really the problem. But, you know, this Texas law that prohibits the teaching of DEI in its public universities, that was uh, enacted even before we got the Supreme right. Court's decision on affirmative action. So you have governors like Greg Abbott who were going after DEI going after the training, going after, you know, folks who, you know, made DEI statements to uh, enhance their or, you know, to just be included in their applications for these public universities. So this is all a part of a larger strategy by the right. You know, it's, it's been in place for decades now uh, to enact their, uh, you know, political will, whether it's around women's reproductive rights, whether it's around a race and, you know, eliminating affirmative action or eliminating DEI. And you're right, the Supreme Court is giving them the green light to go ahead to pass these laws at the state level, signaling to them if they are challenged and if they make their way to the Supreme Court, we got your back. You know, we're going Many to- Many of them had already been challenged. Many of them, yes. suits were already pending in Florida and Texas against these DEI rules. And there were already cases behind the Supreme Court cases rules. So they already knew they were coming. But I agree. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk quickly about G Governor Abbott. He he seems to think mm -hmm. that he's in the the United States of Texas, where he doesn't have to comply mm -hmm. with the rules and laws mm -hmm. that govern every other state of this country. That somehow Texas is its own island, as mm -hmm. evidenced by this immigration policy, where he's just doing his own thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, federal immigration law be damned. So help us understand what is Abbott doing uh, at the you know, the border, and how is it thwarting the policy of the U.S. government who is supposed to be in charge of immigration and not individual states? So this is a, a this is the attack that's happening on federalism. And as lawyers, I hope we watch this over and over again. We've constantly seen between both parties, once there's a federal action, a state sues and stops the federal government from doing something after there was a national election. And Abbott has been baiting the president to sue Texas for months with the busing of individuals, having his own Lone Star State border enforcement, right? All of these are ploys to get into that argument to see where the court will lead on these sort of arguments about border protection. While Texas does have some sovereignty, it is not part of its individual country. It is part of the United States. And border protection and entry to the United States is linked to the federal government. Texas does not give passports and they do not give visas. End of conversation with regards to what their controls are in international or they, nor do they enter treaties, right? That's part of our constitution. That's a very clear thing. Abbott is weighing this in the force of the president and saying, come on, I'll take you to court. And I hope the court steps in tomorrow and resolves this and say, okay, you didn't follow the, this act with regards to putting stuff in the water, you have to remove it. It is funny to me that every Republican is law and order until they decide to break whatever the rule yeah. is, and then all of a sudden it's a problem. <laughs> right, they're law and order until the law applies to them, and then they are about breaking every law that they don't like or that doesn't fit their political agenda. When we come forward, we're going to talk about uh, this national monument honoring Emmett Till, and then we're going to talk about the folks that have made the cut to be in the Republican presidential debate that's coming up in a couple of weeks. You'll be surprised to see who's on the list and who's off the list. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are back, and in this hour, we are tracking today's breaking and trending news. And I have joining me in this hour, Alan Ort, immigration law firm, or 
he's the founder of Or Immigration Law Firm, and Eric Ward, he's the executive vice president of Race Forward. Eric, I want to ask you about uh, Joe Biden's decision to designate uh, national monuments tomorrow on what would have been Emmett Till's 82nd birthday. We know that Emmett Till was born in Chicago, so one of the monument sites will be the Temple Church of God in Christ. This is the na- a neighborhood on the Chicago South Side where Till's funeral was held. Another site will be the Tallahatchie County, Mississippi, this landing called the Gray Ball Landing. This is where Till's body was found. And then the third site is the Tallahatchie County District Courthouse because it's in that courthouse where his killers were acquitted by an all-white jury on September 23rd, 1955. How significant is it that Biden is... uh, designating these three uh, monuments to Emmett Till, particularly in light of what we are seeing around Black history. Yes, at a moment where uh, Black belonging is under attack in America, this is a backlash, of course, to the gains of the civil rights movement uh, 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 that was motivated in part by the murder, the torture, the abduction of Emmett Till. And this form of historical memory, remembering where we were as a nation and where we aspire to go is critically important. It is a direct response uh, uh, to Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, uh, uh, Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, and uh, cities and counties around the country who have leaned into this reactionary moment of trying to erase Black presence in in America. Extremely important. What's significant about it is that it's a proactive response, and we should take lessons from that. Those of us watching Joe Biden right now, he is not allowing white nationalists and those who seek to benefit off of them electorally from setting the terms of the conversation and the narrative. He is setting another narrative by moving forward, by ensuring that Americans have access to accurate history, and the rest of us should follow his lead on this question. It is time for us to tell Black history, regardless of whether the governors of Texas and Florida want us to. There's nothing wrong with telling the truth. Yeah, I'm so glad that this is happening so we can get this counterbalance, this this counter-narrative, because we, we can't let uh, DeSantis and Abbott drive the narrative. We can't let them... Uh, you know, occupy the the media around, you know, this false history, this this fabricated history that they want to tell about Black folks in this country. And there's no reminder of the brutality of the vestiges of slavery and, you know, uh, Jim Crowism than the, you know, just the horrific murder of young Emmett Till. And I'm so glad that we'll see the president and others, uh, I'm sure with him in his administration, making this very significant, you know, it's not just a gesture. It has real meaning and substance, and it gives us an opportunity to educate folks in our community, those that don't know who Emmett Till is or don't know his story. So kudos to so Biden-Harris administration. Absolutely. It's so important. And and to remember that these types of lynchings are, are still occurring, right, in this country. We, we, we can't forget that on July 4th, uh, uh, John Mike Roney Jr. was killed outside of a Kansas City convenience store, stabbed uh, uh, by an individual, 
right, who used uh, racial rhetoric, right? These lynchings are, are still occurring, both at the hands of the state and by individual vigilantes. And in the case of this Kansas City story, the individual who was involved in the attack was released, right, was only charged with disturbing the peace. These memorials are a reminder that we still have work to do, that these things are still happening around us. No, excellent point. Uh, I want to shift gears for a minute, Alan, and talk about uh, who made the list to be on that stage at the first uh, Republican presidential debates. That's coming up very, very quickly. Uh, August, as you know, is around the corner and they will host their first debates. Fox is hosting it in August and they set some requirements. The Republican National Committee, the RNC, uh, set the requirements for what each candidate had to do in order to qualify. Uh, and, uh, you know, tell us who surprisingly isn't on that list. I, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at so far, you know, who is on the list and who isn't on the list. But uh, I was a little surprised at some of the folks that didn't make it. Well, I mean, some of the people didn't have the money to buy the, buy the individual donations to make it right. I didn't get my free gift certificate for giving a dollar to whomever from uh, whatever state. So, um, you know, I, it's kind of a clown car anyway. So whoever is on the stage, I mean, I, I think I know that um, Chris, Chris Christie made it right. And Chris Christie uh, and Tim Scott, which I was yeah. surprised because, you know, Chris Christie has been uh, below single yeah. digits, if that's possible. Yeah, so uh, I think so wait. Tim Scott is playing a specific role within the, the party right now. And I don't know if he's, he's if it's for vice president or not, but he's playing the victimization, black people get over yourselves role. And that's all he plays all day on, ongoing for every record. So um, that's his role to be on the stage to say, oh, yeah, there's a black person here. Right. I mean, and I guess they could have tried to get Nikki or I guess the other guy, the other Indian national didn't make it. I don't even remember his name. I mean, he didn't make it right. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, he made it oh, uh, so far. Yeah. All right. Surprise. Uh, Congratulations. He, he made it. Uh, Nikki <laughs> Haley has made it. And this is all, again, this, yeah. you know, let me tell you the standards that they're using. Uh, 1% or higher in two qualifying national polls and two qualifying state polls from separate states. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the barrier is so low that mm -hmm. It, it, it's surprising that, you know, anyone that's a serious candidate didn't make it. And also there's some fundraising requirements. So it's still in flux as, you know, who's actually met the fundraising requirements. But I think what's going to be interesting about this debate is Donald Trump. He says he's not showing up. Right. Uh, Eric, well, do you think that impacts? Go ahead. Uh, you want to jump in there, Alan? What, what does that well, do? I, I think it doesn't because the answer for me would be who on that stage has said something against Donald Trump that's not Chris Christie. Who else is it? In Kasich, right? No, not Kasich. Uh, uh, well, Asa uh, Hutchison is did Asa not. Hutchison, the former Homeland Security guy. Yeah. Yes, he's not on the list so far. So he's one of the names, better known, well known names uh, that didn't make the list. But what do you think, Eric, about uh, Donald Trump saying these are a bunch of, you know, B, B uh, list candidates, B, C and D list candidates. I'm an A lister, so I don't even want to be in the same room, on the same stage, in the same building with these losers. Uh, so he says, I'm not coming. I I'm going to be someplace doing something that, you know, what winners do. Uh, what do you think uh, happens if he doesn't show up? Yeah, look, there, without uh, Donald Trump there, there, there uh, is no real debate. Donald Trump is leading uh, the Republican 
Democrats in the polls. Um, uh, nearly all of them, nearly all of them combined, right? He still beats them. The, the second is, is the Republican Party hasn't distanced itself from Donald Trump. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it wants both Donald Trump and it wants uh, uh, Trumpism. And these are candidates who cannot compete without Republican leadership standing up, right, and condemning Donald Trump. Uh, he's right. He's an A-lister. But I don't think uh, uh, A stands for what we would say A stands for in this case. Uh, he won't be there. He needs a performance. Yeah, no, it's a good point, Eric. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about uh, Barbie shattering the box office. The first uh, time a woman uh, director has had an opening this big, but lots of controversy around the Barbie movie. Uh, and Twitter may be getting a new logo. And we got to talk about Donald Trump and his new trial schedule, Alan, which is getting really, really, really busy uh, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Alan, you and I know what it's like to have a busy trial schedule. So usually when you think of busy trial schedules, you're thinking about trial lawyers who might have multiple cases for different clients that have been set for trial in different courtrooms uh, involving different issues, and they may all be back to back to back. Well, Donald Trump is not a trial attorney, yet he has a very, very, very crowded trial schedule. Now, some folks are trying to spin what the judge in Florida did by setting the classified documents trial in May of next year is somehow a victory for Donald Trump. Others are saying it's a victory for the Justice Department. It seems like to me the judge just split the baby. Uh, she didn't go with December, but nor did she go with after the 2024 election. But even before we get to May, Trump has a trial scheduled to start in October, and that's the trial uh, involving the case brought against his corporation for fraud by Letitia James in New York. He has another trial, E. Jean Carroll. This is another defamation trial. That's set to uh, start on January 15th of 2024. That's the same day as the Iowa caucuses. Uh, there's another trial in January involving uh, claims that he defrauded consumers. Uh, and then we get to presumably this May trial, and that's not including what could be a trial in the a federal indictment for interfering with the peaceful transfer of power or whatever Bonnie Will, uh, you know, Willis may bring in Georgia. So how does one defendant? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know what I mean. I don't think he even realizes what he's defending at what time. So it's just going to be impossible. He has a small lawyers. I heard that he can't pay his legal bills at the current point because it's just so many lawyers in so many different spaces. And my understanding, I mean, outside the beltway, but still in the beltway, it's hard for the, anyone associated with Trump to get a good lawyer because they don't want to ruin their career. And that hampers his justice in some ways, but it's also the will that he made for himself. So him and all the rest of the people, because people just don't touch him, especially large firms, don't want anything to do with it. Yeah, he can be a cancer for large corporate firms because uh, folks that uh, pay those firms large sums of money, many of them don't want to be at the same firm where lawyers are representing Donald Trump. And, you know, I think Alan folks would feel differently about that because big law firms, big corporate law firms represent all kinds of, quote unquote, mm -hmm. you know, bad people, big corporations that do all kinds of horrible stuff to the environment, to the climate. Mm -hmm. But Trump requires his lawyers to push the envelope to make frivolous claims, to file frivolous claims, to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
really misstate the facts, to mm. make fallacious statements to the court. So, so many of his lawyers end up getting disciplined by the bar, <laughs> getting disbarred. So I it's think hard. more, you I know, in addition to the culture wars, it's like, when you represent this dude, you got to put your bar license on the line. Everything you work for in your career uh, may be in jeopardy because he's going to have you, you know, making these outrageous claims before federal judges in particular that don't play. I mean, they just don't play that. So I think that's a, one of the reasons he's having such a hard time finding. Uh, but is it also curious that in the history of this country, we've never had a president with so many lawsuits, so never. many presidents there in the history of this country and still people support him. So that's really my answer to you a little bit about the candidates. I don't care who they are, because if they all support Trump, they're versions of Trump and they don't care about justice, because if you're going to support someone with this many problems, you don't really care. You just care about what the what the non-platform is hating everybody. So I have no time for it. I thought I find as as a member of the court as you are, I find it very disruptive to me that so many Republican jurists are just saying, oh, it doesn't matter. All these lawsuits. I mean, come on. Yeah, that that's re really troubling, Eric. When you think about again, uh, Alan brought out the Law and Order Party now is supporting a guy that twice impeached, you know, federal indictment, federal investigation, civil lawsuits, judgment of five million dollars, a judge that has adjudicated him as a rapist. Let's be clear about what that judge and E. Jean Carroll's uh, did last week, facing additional civil charges, including civil charges related to fraud. So like you are fraudulent. You have defrauded, you know, consumers. You've you've defrauded individuals. So it doesn't seem to matter uh, what the charges are and what the, you know, the legal jeopardy that he finds himself in. There are Republicans who are saying it doesn't matter. We'll vote for him even if he's sitting in a jail cell, if he's been convicted by a jury of his peers and then even sentenced. Uh, you know, is this just the cult? I mean, this sounds like cult type behavior. It is uh, cult-like behavior, and it's a might-is-right mindset. It's, it's the idea that uh, power is all that matters. It's not about the rule of law. right? It's not about building community. It is about taking care of, of number one, and Donald Trump has shown himself to be an expert at that uh, uh, over his life, and it has caught up with him, and he is betting, right? Uh, uh, in this most recent uh, uh, situation, right? They tried to delay the case, right? He argued that it shouldn't take place until after the elections. It is his bet that he will be the president of the United States and therefore uh, will not have to be held accountable. This is a long game by the, the Trump campaign. We need to pay attention. We should pay attention to the fact that even Trump appointed uh, 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 judges like Eileen Connors right, are uh, uh, calling the question on Donald Trump. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a cult. And uh, uh, with a cult, right, you're not going to get people to, to disbelieve so easily. They have invested a lot in the bigotry and xenophobia and the fear of, of Donald Trump. It's time for good people to understand the difference. And that means we have to vote, but we also have to invest in our communities. We have to defend our communities so that we can defend the dreams and the visions of the next generation of Black people. Yeah, that, that judge uh, is Eileen Cannon, uh, Allen, and now Donald Trump is running it. As Eric said, it's about the long game, 
win the presidency, pardon myself from all of these federal charges, shut down the Department of Justice, shut down any investigations that may be ongoing. But we know that he will not have that pardon power over any state conviction. So the game only gets him so far. But this is unusual, as you said. We, we have a guy now running for president to protect himself from legal, you know, jail from legal jeopardy. He's not running to represent the people or because he has a vision for a better America or a vision for middle class people. This is about saving his own high. This is about getting in that position of power so he can pardon himself and any of his other cronies that may go down with him. This is a first again. And Donald Trump has been a lot of firsts for this country. Well, and also notice that that state, Georgia, has a new rule in which they can sort of end that from fading Willis, right? I mean, that's part of what happened. The Supreme Court said that she could move forward. The Supreme Court of Georgia did. But they already passed a recent rule, giving the governor the ability to say, you're looking at the wrong thing. This needs to go away, right? So after, depending on how the things fall, depending on how the laws go, just as we watch what's happening in Israel, right, we should be aware that it's already happened in some of our states here. Yeah, the good the good news, and we'll see what that Georgia governor does if he tries to invoke that law to and somehow you know impede, uh, quash, or in any way uh, you know prevent the what we think will might you know will be an indictment of Donald Trump and some of his uh, colleagues. Uh, good news is that governor and Trump hate each other, but you you never know. You know, <laughs> politics is a funny game. You know, thin line between love and hate. Real quickly, uh, Eric uh, Barbie, uh, hundred fifty five million, the biggest North American yes. opening movie directed by a woman. So that's great news. But a lot of controversy about Barbie. You know, Ben Shapiro is saying it was the worst two hours of his life, and the movie's too woke. Blah blah blah. But a lot of young African American folks aren't aren't happy with some of the ways that Barbie tackles uh, relevant cultural issues. I don't know if you've seen the movie, have read much about it, but you, you have any opinion about Barbie? Yes, look, I, uh, I know we are almost out of time in this segment, so I will say a couple of things. You know, Barbie is a, a telling about white women's anxiety in America right now uh, 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 and the deep level of sexism. They try to tell it in, in a deep in a deeper way, but uh, again, it's the importance of having diverse staff to make sure, right, that audiences uh, America is diverse and uh, uh, films need to represent that diversity. Uh, at the end of the day, too, I will just say uh, the success of Barbie rests on the success of a film uh, called Hidden Figures about uh, the true story of Black women. Uh, it is the success of that film that opened up the pathway to the success of Barbie this year. Excellent point. And, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Alan, real quickly, did you see Barbie? I have an opinion about it. They cloned Tyrone. I'm black. HBC you all the way. <laughs> okay. You can come back for that one. Cause I got through 30 minutes of your boy and I, I just couldn't, the black exploitation stuff was killing me. I was like, okay, I, I can't anymore with the so pimp. Good. You have to finish it. The... You just have to live through it. It's worth it. It's educational. <laughs> All right, because you said that I did go back and watch Beef because a friend told me I needed to get through that because I couldn't get with Beef either. But I'm going to go back and, and give They Clone Tyrone another shot. It won't be Friday night. I won't be sleepy. 
Uh, and you and I'll have a conversation about it, but uh, glad to see, you know, African-American folks working. That's a good thing, particularly in light of this strike. But uh, we're out of time. Always a pleasure to see you, my friend, Alan. Thank you so much, Eric, uh, for making your debut appearance right here on Ariva Martin in real time. And when we come forward, uh, my justice correspondent, KBOA justice correspondent, Dion Raymond is here and my legal panel. We're going to break down what happened inside that federal courthouse downtown Los Angeles today when the USC Dean Marilyn Flynn was sentenced. And what does this mean for former LA City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas? So stay with us right here on KBLA Talks 15. On Friday, Vice President Kamala Harris rebuked the Florida Board of Education's new standards for how Black history will be taught in schools, calling it an effort by extremist leaders to spread propaganda. Speaking in Jacksonville, Florida, Harris said the recently approved curriculum, which suggests some slaves reap benefits from the skills they acquired during forced labor, was based on a policy intent on misleading children. Chris Christie also slammed. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis over the new Black history curriculum. According to Chris Christie, DeSantis started this fire with the bill that he signed, and now he doesn't want to take responsibility for whatever is done in the aftermath. This is according to the former New Jersey governor. Texas Governor Greg Abbott doubled down today in a letter to the Biden administration's that Texas won't comply with the Department of Justice's plan to sue the state for deploying a floating barricade at the southern border. The DOJ, in a letter to the Texas governor on Thursday, cited the unlawful construction of a floating barrier in the Rio Grande River and asserted that the barrier might impede the federal government's official duties. Well, President Joe Biden is expected to establish a national monument in fact, there will be three national monuments honoring Emmett Till and his mother. The monuments will protect places that are central to the story of Till's life, including uh, the church where he was buried, the river where his body was found, and the courthouse where the two white men were acquitted by an all-white juror for his death. Uh, this mo these monuments will also play tribute, pay tribute to his mother's activism, which helped spark the civil rights movement. The federal judge presiding over Donald Trump's indictment for allegedly mishandling classified documents has scheduled his trial to start in late May of next year, rejecting claims by the former president's attorney that a fair trial could only be held after the 2024 election. The court also rejected the Justice Department's request to start the trial as soon as December. Well, Twitter is rebranding to a capital X. Twitter's owner, Elon Musk, announced the rebrand this weekend. He suggested replacing its Bluebird logo with an X. And this X started to show up on the site overnight. Branding experts and former employees uh, were critical of the rebranding decision. Seven Republican presidential candidates have, as of Sunday, met the polling requirements to appear on the August debate stage following new polling from Fox Business in Iowa and South Carolina. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Vic Ramaswamy, former VP Mike Pence, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie have all reached 1% or higher 
and have qualified thus far for the debates. Texas A&M University President Catherine Banks resigned late Thursday amid the fallout from the mishandled hiring of a University of Texas professor who rejected a watered-down employment offer to revive the school's journalism program after blowback after her research on diversity and inclusion. The weaker offer came after complaints from within the university system and outside conservative groups about Professor Catherine McElroy's previous employment as a New York Times editor and her research as a professor on diversity, equity, and inclusion in newsrooms. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's breaking and trending news expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time. And in this hour, we are talking about the sentencing of former USC Dean Marilyn Flynn in the federal bribery trial of former Los Angeles City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas. Marilyn Flynn and her legal counsel were in the courtroom this morning for sentencing and our own justice correspondent, Dion Raymond, uh, was there. She's going to be joining us in this hour to give us a gavel-to-gavel uh, breakdown in terms of what happened in that courtroom. And then we're going to be talking to our legal panel, uh, defense attorney uh, Mansfield Collins and veteran prosecutor Bobby Grace about some of the comments that the judge made while she was sentencing Marilyn Flynn, you know, what can we read into those comments and what might those comments mean for the sentencing of Mark Ridley Thomas, which is happening uh, in about three weeks uh, in August? Uh, some of the comments were particularly disturbing. Uh, some, I think, showed us a lot about what this judge is thinking about this case and what she might do when Mark Ridley Thomas is before her in August. Uh, when we come forward, uh, Dion Raymond, Bobby Grace, and Mansfield Collins all here to help us break down what's happening uh, in the Mark Ridley Thomas federal bribery trial. This is the only station that's bringing you gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage of this very, very important trial. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, I am joined by KBLA's justice correspondent, Dion Raymond, and uh, the panel that has been helping us make sense of the federal bribery trial of Mark Ridley Thomas from its beginning, uh, esteemed criminal defense attorney Mansfield Collins and veteran prosecutor, prosecutor Bobby Grace is joining us as well. And we know today, uh, retired USC Dean uh, Marilyn Flynn, who pled guilty uh, to one count of uh, bribery with respect to this uh, deal that she was striking or trying to strike with former LA City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas that would have resulted in some extension of a contract to provide services through the university to uh, communities around the university. We know that she was in court today and she was ordered by the judge to pay a $150,000 fine, uh, be on home confinement for 18 months under electronic monitoring, and then also have, I believe, three years of probation. 
Dion was in that courtroom. So welcome, Dion, Bobby, and Mansfield. Let's start with you, Dion. Take us inside that courtroom. Who was there? Uh, what did the judge say? And what did Marilyn Flynn and her attorneys say during this sentencing hearing? Yes. Uh, good afternoon, Ariva. It's always good to be here with you. Well, today, uh, Marilyn Flynn was in court with her two attorneys. And um, the um, the, the government attorneys who were there during trial were also um, present for the sentencing. And you had the, you know, the, the general court um, audience, um, just, you know, some members who had been um, watching the trial, but, but not a lot. Uh, the majority of the people there were there for other calendaring matters. And so it was pretty uneventful today. Um, the defense and the government had filed their um, sentencing papers. And the only thing they really disagreed on was the the uh, length of probation. Defense asked for two years, government three years, and of course they got that. And the home confinement. Uh, the defense said that they didn't feel that it was necessary and warranted, given her her um, that she wasn't likely to um, commit another crime, right? To to reoffend, and given her age, that the isolation could um, have a a negative impact on her being um, confined at home for um, 18 months. And so the the government side was that, look, this was a very serious matter, but that there were mitigating circumstances to um, uh, for, for why they did not uh, recommend prison time. And so um, the judge went down the line with what the government requested. And so finally the defense said, look, Your Honor, would you consider a curfew for her instead of home confinement? And at that point, uh, Judge Fisher said, I really did consider a curfew, but I also really considered putting her in prison and I don't think your client would want that. And that's where it ended. So I know that uh, I've gotten some reporting about comments that the judge made during the sentencing. Uh, I want to ask you this, Mansfield, as the lawyers for Marilyn Flynn were trying to argue that she should have this curfew, the judge said this, I seriously considered imprisonment. I take it she, meaning Marilyn Flynn, prefers not to go to prison. Are you surprised to hear that this judge was considering imprisonment given uh, the one count that she put that Marilyn Flynn pled guilty to, the fact that she did enter into a plea agreement, and given that she was not personally enriched by you know, this alleged scheme between her and Mark Riley Thomas. Uh, hi, Ariva. It's good to be here. Um, that comment from the judge seems to be gratuitous. Um, I, I don't think that the judge ever for one moment in, this, in the sentencing phase for Marilyn Flynn ever thought of sending her to prison. I mean, certainly it comes up in the sentencing analysis, but I don't think that uh, that, that was a realistic uh, goal uh, for the government. And, and the government usually, usually the government has the most influence in the way in which the judge is going to end up sentencing someone in federal court. Yeah, Bobby, let me ask you this. So there's a plea agreement. And with the plea agreement, uh, help us understand, typically in that agreement where a defendant is going to accept responsibility, 
at that moment, are there typically conversations about what the recommended sentencing will be so that the person who is pleading guilty has some sense about what the prosecutors are going to recommend? Is that how these plea agreements typically work? Certainly. Um, good afternoon, Ariva. I do believe that um, there was um, a meeting of the minds between uh, Marilyn Flynn's attorneys and the government attorneys as to what the range would be in terms of a sentencing. Uh, I pretty much, uh, Mansfield has hit it on the head. The fact that the government was not asking for time was a big signal to the judge to not imprison Marilyn Flynn. And I agree with Mansfield that she probably wasn't in any danger of, uh, of, of having to do any prison time. And you would have expect, um, you know, I don't know who the lawyers for Marilyn Flynn uh, were, but they wouldn't be very good attorneys if they had not gotten assurances from the government that the government wasn't going to um, to recommend the judge to the judge that she not receive any prison time. So we know that uh, Mark Lee Thomas Dion is scheduled to be sentenced on August 21st. The uh, memo from the prosecution, which we all had a chance to look at regarding Marilyn Flynn's uh, sentencing hearing today, has not been released as it relates to Mark Ridley Thomas. But in the memo regarding Marilyn Flynn, the prosecutors make clear that they're going to be seeking jail time uh, for Mark Ridley Thomas and that they're going to uh, give more details in their own memo regarding him as to why they are doing that. Uh, were there any comments that you heard from the judge today that gave you the impression that if the prosecution seeks jail time, as they have indicated they will, that this judge is likely to give jail time to uh, Mark Ridley Thomas, unlike the home confinement that Marilyn Flynn got? It would be a great departure for her to not um, follow the roadmap or uh, to um, to um, follow what the what the government has been asking for. Certainly that has been what she has done all along is what she did for um, the sentencing today. And she made clear that she's not bound by any plea agreement and that the probation report is, uh, is to advise her. But if we look at their sentencing papers for Marilyn Flynn, not only do I think it gives a roadmap for what they will be asking for Mark Ridley Thomas, I think that we as citizens, as individuals, should be very, very concerned about what they have in these papers and the rationale for why they are asking for confinement versus prison time for Marilyn Flynn. I think it is replete with bias, and I think it's very important for us to be able to unpack these things and have these kind of conversations. Otherwise, it'll go undetected and it'll go missed. Give us an example of, of what you're talking about when you say that the document is replete with bias or some of the things the judge said that all citizens uh, should be concerned about. Well, the fact that we're starting to hear language, both from the government and from the defense's papers. See, now we have this picture of Mark Ridley Thomas as this, you know, wily, unscrupulous man. And these are the types of things that are typically associated with negative black stereotypes, that MRT was the moving force, that he pushed the idea, that she was pressured by him, but she was 
misguided, but she had good intentions. The fact that they are calling the circumstances of the bribery unique and that she did not personally gain from this, um, that she was, that the pressure was understood, but they're not giving any facts or any evidence um, for this, that she was unaware of the um, previous, um, um, I guess, well, I would call it the request to uh, donate the money to another organization. It was legal then. It was legal when it was supposed to go to PRPI. It was legal. But this idea that he didn't tell her about this. This woman was educated. These individuals were colleagues. They had a relationship where they worked together in the past. And if people don't pay attention, what they're doing is, is that they're creating a picture of this dangerous, wily black man whose a will, you know, was forced upon this elderly white woman. We should all be very concerned. Yeah, and to that point, great point about the nuances in language and how powerful language is and, and that words have power. Uh, Mansfield, this is something that was in the prosecution memo. This, this is verbatim. The fact that defendant, Marilyn Flynn, they're talking about, a powerful woman in her own right worried about getting, in quotes, in trouble with Ridley Thomas speaks to his power over defendant and the county business defendants so desperately needed. Now, you sat in that courtroom. Did the defense, I mean, did the prosecution, I should say, did the government put on any witnesses that said that Mark Ridley Thomas uh, exerted some kind of, you know, special power or unusual power over Marilyn Flynn? Uh, we know she didn't even come forward and testify, which suggested, you know, in the conversations we've had previously that maybe she wasn't going to testify consistent with the narrative that the prosecution was spinning. But it seems like now her lawyers have, you know, put a new spin on the fact that they are clearly aligned with the prosecution in perpetuating this narrative that Dion laid out so eloquently that you have this big, scary, powerful black man who's exerting his power and control over this meek, humble, you know, uh, damsel in distress damn near. Uh, but she is a dean of one of the most you know, powerful universities in this region. So what do you make of that statement in this memo? Now, is that directed to me, Ariva? Yeah, that's for you, Mansfield. Okay. All right. So following up on what you were reading from the government's uh, pre-sentencing report, um, it also says, and this is pretty shocking, and this, again, this is consistent with, with the bias that, uh, that fills this system um, from top to bottom. Um, it, in describing Mark Ridley Thomas, it says, but next to the five kings and queens of Los Angeles, defendants' power paled in comparison, meaning Marilyn Flynn had nothing over the five kings and queens of Los Angeles. And that's a reference to the Board of Supervisors. That's very inflammatory, extremely inflammatory. And then the next comment, uh, two lines down, says Ridley Thomas held a monopoly over county business in the second district and the defendant could not afford to displease him. I didn't hear any evidence of that sort during the trial. But now you saw, and by the way, in my view, this is still a conviction in search of a crime. And it just seems as if somebody, you know, looked at this in the very beginning and to be consistent throughout, they had to create a big 
negative image of Mark Ridley Thomas when none really existed. And I'll still maintain my view that someone can exercise perhaps bad judgment, but bad judgment is not always the equivalent of a crime. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so- I, th- Thank you for reading those uh, additional excerpts, Mansfield. Definitely this notion of him being a king, right? So now we gotta take the king down. Yeah. Bobby, uh, so these references and these comments in the prosecution's memo, this wasn't evidence presented during the trial in the prosecution's case. So from a prosecutor standpoint, I'm sure you've been involved in many of these memos in the 30 years you've been a prosecutor. Can you just now go and make up facts? You could just say whatever you want to say, even though it wasn't presented uh, in the trial setting. No, no, you can't, Ariza. In fact, uh, anything that the judges judge uses in terms of sentencing has to be something that was proven at trial. And so this is something that we've been talking about um, the whole time that we've been following the case, that the prosecution did not offer any evidence through witnesses about county business, how these, how these things work, very little evidence about the actual law that was passed. In fact, and the fact that it was on the consent calendar, what does that mean? Um, there are a lot of things uh, here that are problematic in terms of if the pro- um, prosecutors want to use language that Dion and Mansell just pointed to, those things weren't presented in court, and it's going to be difficult for the prosecutors to point to things um, that came out from the trial to use as part of the sentencing that the judge is going to go through. But I will say this, um, this particular judge was uh, a state court judge before she was a federal judge and she was harsh on sentencing then. And so that fact doesn't bode well for Mark Ridley Thomas. Yeah, Dion, you sat through the entire trial. That statement that he had a monopoly over business in the second district, there was no evidence of that to the, in fact, there was evidence to the contrary that business given out to anyone throughout the county had to go through a very elaborate process that involved lawyers, that involved the CEO of the county, that involved staff members and others, that no one county supervisor had the ability to execute or to administer a contract uh, without it going through this very vigorous process. So this use of the word monopoly is beyond inflammatory. In fact, it's just a fabrication uh, of the evidence that was presented. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about is Mark Ridley Thomas going to pay a tax for going to trial, for standing up for himself? I think the judge today used, or the prosecutor used the, the term, he waged a campaign, and Marilyn Flynn did not, and that was a campaign to stand up for himself. What does it mean when a defendant doesn't take a plea deal? Are they going to suffer consequences uh, and the wrath of not just the U.S. attorneys, but possibly the judge? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, we are talking about the sentencing today of former USC Dean Marilyn Flynn in the federal bribery case of Mark Ridley Thomas, former L.A. City Council member, former L.A. County Supervisor. And joining me in this hour is KBLA's Justice Correspondent, Dion Raymond, uh, esteemed criminal defense attorney, Mansfield Collins, and veteran prosecutor, Bobby Grace. So, Bobby, uh, there's a 
you know, a concept that lawyers and some non-lawyers have heard of, often talked about, called a trial tax, uh, where defendants who are given an opportunity to plead guilty, particularly in the federal system, and they don't plead guilty and they go to trial and they are convicted, uh, there's a you know sense that those defendants are treated more harshly uh, because they haven't you know forced the government to use resources, et cetera, et cetera. And for some, you know, they, they maybe had the audacity to challenge the federal prosecutors. We know Marilyn Flynn pled guilty. She did enter into an agreement with the prosecutors. She avoided trial. So here she is facing facing a sentencing range of 57 months to 71 months in prison. And she gets no jail time, 18 months to be at home. Uh, now, Mark Riley Thomas did the opposite, uh, went to trial, very successful on 12 of those 19 counts, but you know, was convicted on seven counts. Is he going to pay a tax, a penalty of sorts for having gone to trial when Marilyn Flint, who's now painted as the, you know, the person who was pressured, took a plea deal? Well, frankly, Ariva, uh, Marilyn Flynn did get uh, consideration for the fact that she pled guilty and accepted her responsibility and placed some blame on Mark Ridley Thomas in her um, sentencing memorandum. So that's one thing. Then, yes, it's true that the unwritten rule in federal uh, and, and in state is if you go to trial, then the judge is going to treat you harsher uh, than someone who pled guilty. Um, it seems that the government is definitely setting up that argument um, to be made that uh, Mark Riley Thomas should be treated differently than Marilyn Flynn because, quote unquote, Marilyn Flynn accepted responsibility and Mark Riley Thomas chose to shirk responsibility or, or not accept any blame here. Um, I think federal prosecutors do um, want and try to uh, put as much pressure on criminal defendants to admit guilt in exchange for uh, sentencing um, considerations. And uh, Mark Lee Thomas is going to definitely, um, they're going to use the fact that he went to trial uh, as part of the argument as to why he should be sentenced to prison. So, man, so help us understand this this kind of catch-22 that Mark Lee Thomas finds himself in. He maintains his innocence. He plans to appeal this decision. No secret about that. The judge seems to have been somewhat lenient on Marilyn Flynn because she did, in open court, quote-unquote, accept responsibility, talked about how embarrassing this was for her, how she never imagined that her you know, 40-year career would end with her being before a federal court judge. Mark Riley Thomas, typically defendants aren't going to make those kinds of statements if they are planning to appeal the conviction. But if they don't make those kinds of statements about remorse, et cetera, are they creating a scenario for themselves where they are likely to receive a harsher sentence? Um, Ariva, this is a um, this is kind of a, a tricky situation. Yes, it is. It is well known throughout the federal uh, defense um, practice uh, that 
if you decide to go to trial, there is not only a, a trial tax, but you know that going in, that the judge is not likely to be lenient at all uh, at the time of sentencing. And that factor is one of the reasons why the feds can uh, indicate that 90%, 93% of their cases end up in plea agreements. It is because of that particular threat. In other words, a defendant that wants to seek justice, wants to have a trial, is basically told you're, it's like Russian roulette. You're gambling and the odds are against you. Now, in, in, in this case, dealing with Mark Reilly Thomas, what's interesting is the government sentencing memorandum of Marilyn Flynn characterizes Mark Ridley Thomas's right to have a trial as frivolous litigation. Now, I don't know how that could be a frivolous litigation, and it factors into what the judge is going to do in terms of sentencing. I don't know how that factors into frivolous litigation. He was charged with 20 counts, and I believe he prevailed on all but seven of them. So obviously it wasn't frivolous. But you can see that the from reading into the sentencing memorandum of uh, for Marilyn Flynn, that the government is going to come at Margaret Lee Thomas in an inflammatory, in a biased, in a completely um, sort of off the charts attack on Margaret Lee Thomas, because, again, they have to find some some, some sort of justification for coming after Margaret Lee Thomas as probably the most decorated uh, most influential black politician in the history of California, if you think about all of his accomplishments. And then they, and, and you look at public corruption or a scheme, and the scheme is nothing more than sending funds that he had a right to do. There's nothing in the sentencing memorandum that says that the $100,000, everybody asked about, well, he sent $100,000. There's nothing in the sentencing memorandum that will ever say that that was illegal. So, yes, now Mark Ridley Thomas uh, is at the sentencing stage. He will not be able to uh, accept responsibility because that would be considered almost a waiver of his of his appeal. It would uh, go against him. So, yes, um, he will. His, his attorneys will argue they will put on a mitigation defense. Uh, they'll ask for they'll indicate that certain factors that the government says were involved were not involved. And just in one last thing, uh, Reva. For the government to make it appear as if USC is this poor, financially strapped, struggling institution and poor Dean Marilyn Flynn, she had no, she had no uh, leverage or, or power or equality with Mark Ridley Thomas. That's just a bunch of, you know, horse pucky. I mean, we know the influence of USC in Los Angeles. We understand that. So yeah, this, is, so uh, this is completely biased against in favor of USC. This sentencing memorandum loves USC. Yeah, and you know, and, to and your that, point, Ansfield, let me just say this, that USC also benefited from the actions of the entire board of supervisors. It wasn't as if Mark Greeley Thomas had a lock on the relationship with USC. Other supervisors had an interest in providing resources to this big institution because it sits in the middle of a low-income community that has a lot of needs. And so the university provides for so many in that community. So again, this notion that he somehow, Mark Louis Thomas, had a monopoly on this relationship is just so contrary to all the evidence. I do want to ask you, uh, Dion, you, you were in the courtroom again today. This is something the judge said. I want to get your reaction to this on the other side. The judge said, bribery of public officials is a very serious offense. The public itself is a victim. 
she could, the judge continued, she called Mark Ruey Thomas a very powerful political figure and said the benefits he sought for his son, Sebastian Ridley Thomas, were obvious and significant. I uh, want to get your reactions to that, Dion, on the other side. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. All right, uh, Dion, what is your response to the judge making that statement that she considered Mark Ridley Thomas a very powerful political figure and that the benefits he sought for his son were obvious and significant? I think that she has been persuaded by the government. I think that she has adopted um, their perspective and their position on this. I think it's a foreshadowing of what's to come for Dr. Ridley Thomas for his sentencing. And um, also she did say though, that um, she felt that Marilyn Flynn had benefited uh, because she did not personally financially gain from this. They are saying that it, it's a unique bribery situation, but that, um, she found that it did help her having those contracts, did help her maintain her position and her national reputation. If she continues to adopt the position of the um, of the government, again, I think it's very dangerous, not just for MRT. You know, there's a saying, if they'll come for me in the nighttime, if they come for me in the day, they'll come for you in the night. If she perceives Marilyn Flynn as taking responsibility, then by comparison, Margaret Lee Thomas has been irresponsible. Ariva, I want to just share with you and anyone who's listening, people plead out all the time. It is not uncommon. And for a myriad of reasons, a lot of times people don't have the, the financial resources. Maybe Marilyn Flynn didn't have the financial resources to fund um, a trial. People are very wary of the, of the, um, of the trial and the jury system. They feel like it's rolling the dice and it, it can be even the most practiced and seasoned lawyers know that. So there are all, so this, this idea that she's somehow taking responsibility and therefore we should be more lenient with her. Also Reva, um, what they put in their papers that she accepted culpability and that it was exceptional. The exceptional that they're talking about is that she admitted that she had violated internal pro uh, policy in processing that check. Um, also, the reason for um, home confinement versus imprisonment is that they said that the effect of federal prison could have on her advanced age. Ariva, I can't think of many places that are worse than prison. No one goes to prison and doesn't risk having some type of negative effect on their health. And so, again, you, we, we have to put this in context of an elderly white woman. The message is, is that prison is not appropriate for her. And so all of this, what this does, it's a setup. It's a setup for what's to come from Mark Ridley Thomas. Yeah, consistent with that, Dion. I'm also bothered by, you know, what, what they make of these history and characteristics of significant mitigating factors. So here you have a dean who had some letters from folks around the country and some local folks, some folks at UCLA even, you know, attesting to her character, we can imagine that Mark Ridley Thomas could fill that entire courtroom with those kinds of letters about the work that he's done in this community. So we'll be watching to see if the letters uh, attesting to his service and history and, you know, the significance that he's played in this community will have the same kind of weight and influence that the judge obviously gave to these letters for Marilyn Flynn. Okay, uh, let's talk about 
the reality. We're, we're all pretty convinced based on that prosecution's report, based on what was said in court today, that this judge is going to be recommending some jail time. We don't know. Uh, the defense is going to recommend or, or make a statement about what they believe the sentencing range is. Prosecution, we can expect to be a lot higher. The judge is going to have to settle in on, on what the real range is. She's not bound by it, but obviously uh, it will guide her decision. Uh, Bobby, what are the chances? You said this judge was a state court judge before a federal judge. Once someone is sentenced, there is an opportunity for them to ask for bail to remain out pending their appeal uh, in the same way that you can remain out pending your trial. Uh, what is the likelihood of this judge, knowing everything we know about her, to grant Mark Riley Thomas's team that request? Probably not. And um, she's going to be under pressure to grant the request because I do think, and I think Dion and Mansfield agree with this, that this is going, she's going to have strong arguments to make on appeal. Um, the issue is going to be because he's a public figure and comments that she's already made uh, in the Flynn sentencing. She viewed, it looks like she views this as Mark Willie Thomas betrayed the public trust. And um, she's going to want to not treat him differently than similarly situated individuals. And I think that he's going to be compared to all those other public uh, officials that we know about who did much more egregious things than Mark Riley Thomas is alleged to have done. Um, and they got significant prison time. Uh, I think that the judge is going to want to compare him to those individuals, some of the people who uh, either pled guilty, most of them pled guilty who were on the city council, uh, who had you know, much more egregious bribery charges against them. Uh, it's unfortunate, um, you know, based upon the sentencing papers that we've seen that Mark Ridley Thomas is going to be portrayed this way. And it, it is somewhat unfair. Can can I add a footnote to that, Ariva? Yes. And and and, and I think they they they've set themselves up though. They've kind of bagged themselves in because they've already described this as a unique bribery situation. And so if that applies to her, it's got to apply to him. He did not stand to personally gain. This money was going to go to pay for a staff member that was going to do a survey of, of voting trends in the black community. She said one of the things she had to consider was sentencing consistent with other cases so as to avoid disparities in sentencing for the same or similar crimes. The judge said, mine doesn't comply very well. So I, I think they've kind of- Well, she's acknowledging <laughs> that her sentences reflect disparities and she's not, Obviously, she, she she's concerned about it, but not really concerned about it because she's not uh, sentencing in the same way. So so Mansfield, Bobby raises a good point. We've seen several city council members from the city of Los Angeles uh, charged with bribery, some taking casino chips and private jets and money stashed in you know, weird places in their homes. Uh, some of those individuals pled and got, as Bobby said, some pretty significant, you know, in the range of seven to 10 years, I'm thinking of a couple. 
jail time. How can this judge in good faith characterize what Dion just described as money that went to a nonprofit to pay for staff, not even his own son as staff, but someone else, a third party staff member? How can she paint him in the light of those individuals that had casino chips and had private jets and had, you know, prostitutes and, you know, other kinds of nefarious uh, you know, things given to them to vote on development contracts. I think you're on mute, Mansfield. It, you said it in good faith. I'm not sure that she can compare it to those egregious examples of public corruption that Bobby set forth and that we all are aware of. This never was that kind of case. It just never, ever amounted to egregiousness at that level. And that's why I've said it may have shown some poor judgment, but it certainly did not cross over into becoming a crime. But um, if you look at the equities, Marilyn Flynn was 84 years old today. Is that correct, Dion? 84 years old today. So at the time that this was happening, she was pretty close to retirement. And and so she, you know, the, the harm that she would actually suffer is, was pretty de, de minimis. She wasn't going to get criticized from USC. She wasn't going to be fired from USC. She probably was in the process of retiring. Mark Ridley Thomas is in the prime of his political uh, career. Um, so if there's an equity in terms of establishing what kind of punishment would have a same kind of effect on somebody in Mark Ridley's position, it would be a similar sentence that that uh, that Marilyn Flynn received, because in essence, what the sentence is doing is trying to uh, end Mark Ridley Thomas's political career. And for someone in Mark Ridley Thomas's position, that's a harsher sentence that he can no longer participate in politics than what Marilyn Flynn received. Much harsher. Absolutely. Real quickly, Bobby, uh, we know he's going to be appealing the convictions. Uh, can a defendant appeal sentencing and what is that process? What's the timing on that process? Um, so uh, in state court, you have a, a right to uh, automatic uh, appeal in terms of, of being able to file right away. Um, the the courts will, uh, the appellate courts will take it up. The federal courts move quicker than the state courts. So uh, Mark Lee Thomas should be able to, to move very quickly to appeal this. I expect them to be uh, vigorous in terms of, of trying to move that through the system. I also think um, because of the significance of this case in the community, the federal appellate court will want to take this up very quickly and, and come to some sort of resolution because they don't want this hanging over uh, some doubt as to what's going to happen to Mark Ridley Thomas. Um, Mansfield very eloquently talked about his impact uh, in the political arena, what he's done. Um, and it would not be fair uh, either to Mark Ridley Thomas or to the people of the second district, supervisory district, to not have finality with respect to this. So I expect the appeal to go uh, very quickly and to take up the issue. I can't say which way it's gonna go because I, I, I'm very surprised the way that this particular judge is characterizing some of this. So it'll be very interesting to see how things go. But I do think, uh, he has a very good case on appeal. 
We are out of time. Thank you so much, Dion Raymond, uh, Mansfield Collins, Bobby Grace, the best legal team in this state, bringing you gavel to gavel coverage of the federal bribery trial of Mark Ridley Thomas. We will be back here with this same team on August 21st when Mark Ridley Thomas himself is sentenced in that same federal courthouse in downtown Los Angeles. We will be there and we'll be reporting out as we have done since the beginning of this trial. Again, thank you so much for your time.